This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to helping you become a savvier marketing leader no matter your level. In each episode, we will dive into a relevant topic or challenge that marketing leaders are currently facing. We will also give you practical tools and applications that will help you put what you learn into practice today. And if you missed anything, don't worry. We put worksheets on our website that summarize the key points. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about consumer research and specifically four key questions to ask in order to get those insights from consumers that can really, really shape your business. So consumer research is definitely more of an art than a science, but based on our many, many years of participating in or conducting was probably well into the thousands of consumer research sessions. Seriously. Yeah, very seriously. That's not an exaggeration. (laughs) We believe that there are specific questions and ways of asking the questions that unlock opportunities for uniquely connecting your business to your consumers. And just really quickly here, we talked about consumer research briefly in our episode 35, Four Techniques for Defining and Engaging Your Target Consumer with Jennifer Knopel of NASCAR. It's a really nice complimentary episode to this one and an interesting one, too, because we talk about consumer through Jen's lens of NASCAR. So listen to that one, too, and note that consumer research doesn't have to be a formal process. It's simply a way of engaging even one-on-one in a regular status call that helps you get to these insights. Yes. And one more point, and we're going to say consumer here, we're going to use the word consumer as a proxy for doing any kind of research. But keep in mind that this can apply to whatever research you're doing, whether it's internal research amongst your employees, whether it's really understanding externally, like any kind of customer profiling, or maybe you're doing a business audit. The difference is that the target you're reaching is a little bit different. But like, again, we're going to use the word consumer here as our proxy in order just to simplify the conversation. And with that, let's get into the four key questions that lead to insightful consumer research. So the first one is, what is causing you a lot of tension, anxiety, angst right now? Or as me and April just sum it up, what really sucks? (laughs) Now, remember, this is through the lens of your consumer, not what sucks for you. All right. And I want you to ask this in two contexts. So first, I want you to ask this in life in general, but then also specifically within the category or industry that you are in. And the reason why we ask you to do this is because when you ask first in life, you're getting the most omnipresent issues that face your consumer day in and day out. And these are really gold. And this is where you engage when you're really trying to bring new users into your category. Now, the trick is it has to be an authentic connection, but this is really where your creativity comes in with how to create that authentic connection that really clicks in that life format without it feeling too much of a stretch. But if it's starting to feel like too much of a stretch, and we all know what that feels like, we're just like, oh, okay, yeah, like for sure, like my product is not going to actually like be able to solve all of life's problems. That's fine. To bring it back to the category or industry connection, it can still work very well there and maybe a little bit easier for the consumer to internalize, especially if you're solving for attention that's really, really prevalent in the industry, right? This works a lot for CPG products. When you're in your industry, people are already in that category, and you're just trying to win your fair share of those consumers within that category. All right, so what does this look like? So let's break this down a little bit. All right, so one tension that April and I hear very frequently when asking the life question is, I just don't have enough time. Whatever that time is or whatever they're putting that in context in. It's like, I don't have enough time for fill in the blank. And saving time is a universal tension that many brands have leveraged both directly and indirectly, very effectively. So let me break this down even a little bit further. So if I was going to be a consumer and I was going to give this response, I just don't have enough time filling in the blank. Maybe it's, I don't have enough time to make dinner because I'm running my kids everywhere, but I'm tired of just going through the drive-thru. Enter DoorDash and Uber Eats, one that they solve for very uniquely and have done so very well. I don't have time to waste doing laundry. So a lot of people would say, hey, that's a laundry service or it's a dry cleaners. But ironically, it was tied. And we use that a lot in order to put us in context of actually our category as well as life. So it did a little bit of double duty in that kind of context because we got stains out the first time. So you didn't have to spend all your time rewashing the clothes and and checking for the stains. You could just put your laundry in and not think about it and get it done. Or I don't have time to do tasks like grocery shopping, going to the bank, cleaning my house, planning for a vacation, enter 
very fundamental brands and new brands like Instacart or just a whole development of online banking or house cleaning service or travel agents. And ironically, if you think about travel agents, the role of travel agents has changed a lot where they used to be the people that were in the know. They knew like all the vacations to go on. That was why you went to a travel agent is to really understand what kind of vacation you want to go take. And now they're really more vetting partners because we have access to all of that. So there's an example of one that's actually had to pivot. And one that isn't obvious but clicks is I don't have time to learn how to manage my money or do my taxes. And here's where wealth managers and accountants fit in. But many wealth managers and accountants will focus on, hey, we do it right, or you're not going to get audited. But they don't really think about, and they could, and this could be a really big differentiator for them, about how they save time when not having to think about how you need to learn how to do your taxes right or how to learn how to manage your money to the extent that they do. So regardless of how you answer the question, the objective is to find a relevant context within this life tension that connects authentically with your brand. Now, from an industry or category standpoint, it's about understanding the tensions your consumer, customer, client is having within your industry or category. So just a couple of examples there. I already gave you the Tide one, but a couple more here. The big trend in beauty and hair care is wanting products that are more healthy or natural. You know, the skin and for the hair. The tension really here, what sucks for these new consumers who are doing these products is that the performance isn't quite there. And so now there feels like there's a trade-off between healthy products and good performing products, which is one that, that these natural and healthy beauty brands are constantly trying to solve for. In a B2B business context, your clients are probably facing a lot of challenges when it comes to staffing. Here, the tension is maintaining a healthy business amidst a lean, unpredictable, and stretched workforce. Also, supply chain issues continue to be a tension as well. So some of these tensions, especially in the B2B context, may feel too big for you to solve on your own, but you can help with alleviating some of the tension by addressing how they're going to feel as a result, which is going to lead us to the next point, but I'm going to take a break because I've been talking a lot and let April actually say something. Yeah. So first I will say that was a lot. It was meant to be. This is one of those episodes that's going to be jam-packed. So if you have to, go back and rewind or plug for our worksheets, which we do for every single episode. So mm -hmm. if you need that, we will... Have a download for that. But the point that I want to make, and did a really good job of breaking down what can these look like given different types of consumers, different industries, what you might be listening for, all of those types of things. But I just want to make the overarching comment that you need to make sure that these are actual points of angst or concern mm -hmm. for your consumer. Because what I have seen as a big no-no in consumer research is, well, a couple things. One, looking for a preconceived notion as the answer and trying to ask questions to get the consumer to answer that that's their angst, which is bad. But then also taking what a consumer says, and it can be like more of a surface level complaint, right? Versus something that is really mm -hmm. a continuing point of angst within them. And I've just seen too many, well, product research really specifically through the lens of consumers where everybody pats themselves on the back because they hear what they wanted to hear or they hear something that they believe is an insight. And in all actuality, it was just a flippant comment by the consumer or it ends up being contrived because of the way you wrote the research. So the examples are great because you can see what we're talking about and what that lens should be. But the point I want to make is these are either recurring or they're bigger than just they happen one time. I mean, they're things that a consumer is like, oh, like when I think about the I don't have time to make dinner, but I don't want to go through the drive through. Right. Like said every mom with kids everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> and so being able to solve that something that they're just constantly like, you know, it's on your mind and you're like, I don't want them to eat McDonald's again. But oh, my God, if I have to go home and cook an entire meal. So that's the level that we're talking about. One, to truly get it an insight that is a true insight, but then also to get it something that's meaty enough that you're going to be able to solve in a meaningful way. And how would you define a true insight, April? Because I'm sure that that question is going to come up a lot as we go through this. So the way that I like to talk about insights is, well, I just alluded to this a little bit of it's not usually something that one consumer just sets. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times that can be what happens, right? And so I will way oversimplify this, but... Let's just say, you know, you have a blue package and a consumer comes in and they're like, 
oh, I wouldn't buy that product because blue makes me sad. And I just don't think that that's then going to connect to a product that's supposed to make me feel better. Mm -hmm. And then everybody runs to change the color of the package, right? And you're like, okay, that one person said that. Blue can also be calming. So let's just start there. But that's not the problem to be solved, right? And so what you're looking for is something, I like to describe it as something that's giving people like actual heartache. And I I don't mean that like if you don't know how to feed your kids dinner, you're going to feel like, you know, you might cry. <laughs> but I mean, I mean it more like it is a true emotional state. And I don't think you get to an insight until you hear the same kind of comments over and over. And then you can boil them down. So I'll give the example of a makeup client that I worked on several years ago. And we talked before about crowded categories. Man, is that a crowded category, yeah, right? And and so, but this one in particular had a few unique qualities. It was really good for people that had had plastic surgery, either voluntarily or not, because it really covered well. But it was also really good from the perspective that it healed your skin. And so we were looking at really two different extremes of customers. But what we wanted to get at was... Who was the right target mentality? And so we brought in consumers from both sides. And the conversation would start with more surface level commentary, right? Like when you put this on your face, how does it make me feel? It makes me feel good because you can't see my scar when I leave the house. Or mm -hmm. I feel more confident when I go out into the world. Okay, that's all true. I'm not saying that that's not true. But what we ended up getting to when we actually dug in and kept asking questions, well, why? Well, why is that important to you? Well, why do you feel like, you know, well, it's a distraction if I don't have that. And when we finally got to what I would consider a true insight, these women wanted to show their face to the world, but not at the sacrifice of looking like they were wearing too much makeup. And so the connection with this brand was much more around the idea that I feel like I'm in my natural skin, even though I'm covering something up. Instead of beauty through the definition of I want to have mascara and eyeliner and all these different things, it was like, I want to look like I'm not wearing makeup. And had we taken those more surface level things around covering my scar, feeling more confident, I mean, those were things that you could say about covering a blemish or things mm -hmm. you could say about makeup in general. Women wear makeup because they want to feel confident. We made a connection with this specific target consumer because they either didn't want to look like they had surgery or they didn't want to look like they were wearing makeup. But either way, the insight was we want to look natural like we don't have anything on our face. And that's why we wear this makeup. Mm, yeah, I think that's a really, really good story because it reads very nicely into the next point, which is. What feelings does this tension, anxiety, angst create, and what feelings would it create if it was alleviated? Look at me setting myself up. Or maybe it's me setting you up by asking you the question. Okay, that's fine. All right, fair. We'll agree to disagree. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this might feel obvious, but honestly, it isn't, especially because people handle tensions differently, right? So the feelings aren't always the same, which is another hard part about getting to an insight because like in my previous example, if you stopped at just confidence, right? It, that confidence Very can come out in so many insight, different, yeah. yeah. And so like if you think about people not feeling good, right? There's all there's a gamut of emotions associated with that. Stress, fear, irritation, disappointment, uncertainty. Those are all negative emotions. What they want to feel is the opposite of those things. Peace, relief, confidence, joy, contentedness, those types of things. And so what we want to be able to do is counteract the feelings that are there, but at a broad enough sense that whatever your articulation is of that, you can feel what you want to feel as a result of alleviating this tension point. And so this is what becomes your key differentiator because you're going to be able to connect and address the right emotion that is a result of that tension point or angst so that they feel the opposite, like I said, or more positive about it. And then you want to hone in on that feeling as the focus of your communication, either very overtly and directly or through a marketing vehicle that gets at it. And so when you recognize these feelings, it really does create a sense of empathy. And the reason they work is because then the consumer feels like you understand what they are going through mm -hmm. and you're going to help them address it, which makes them more open and less skeptical of things like commercials and brand messages, and marketing communications, and all of those types of things. As a really specific example, infomercials use this approach. 
Now, you can have your opinion about infomercials and, you know, I personally cannot stand them. (laughs) But the point here is that they really do take the time to take the consumer through the journey and what they are feeling and the solution that they are providing in order to present you with this opportunity to solve that angst for you. Okay, for most brands, it's not the tone they want. You might not want to see your products in those infomercials, depending on who you are. But if you take a minute to watch them and kind of break it down, you can see a good example of what we are talking about here. And then, like Ann did, I will talk about the B2B side of things. So, you know, B2B clients are notorious for saying, what if I can't solve these problems? You know, we have supply chain issues. We have personnel issues. These are big problems that are internal to our organization. And so what we will say is, If you are listening for what the problems are and the reasons that you have those issues, you can find ways to address them and solve them a bit more indirectly. So, for example, if folks are feeling stressed or the organization is feeling stressed because you don't have a lot of work staff, you can offer to increase the compensation to make people feel better about working those longer amounts of time, for example. And as an internal employee at the organization, you do have the opportunity to impact things, even if it isn't, like we said, in the traditional consumer research space. So what we're saying is if you can identify what the tension or the anxiety or what that is and what the counter emotion or solution should be, you don't necessarily have to be the one to go and solve, but you can make suggestions and you can say, I think this might help alleviate, for example, the lack of workforce. And also in the process, you can make yourself look like a real rock star in the organization because you were the one to come up with the solution to a problem that people felt overwhelmed about because no one knew the solution to. Yeah, I think that's a a really good example. And I think it works from the standpoint of your B2B clients as well. Yeah. So if your B2B clients are going through this the same lean workforce issues or supply chain issues, there might be things that you can solve directly, but knowing that that's a really significant angst or tension point for them, how can you solve it for them in a different way? And again, th- the same way that you just applied it internally can work externally where you're like, hey, um, you know, we see that, you know, this person feels very stretched. Well, why don't we take on more scope that alleviates that person from being super stretched or maybe they can be then uh, spend some time working on something else. So sometimes it's not about like going after and solving the exact problem. Sometimes it's trying to figure out another way to solve something that maybe gives people mind space in order to be able to focus on the thing that's actually the tension point at that moment. So even from the example, when we're talking about, you know, the mom going through the drive-thru, which we can both very much empathize <laughs> with. I mean, the, another like clear tension there is like feeling like you're a good mom. Yes. Right. You know, and, and, and not feeling maybe like you're the best mom in that moment, but you're but you're actually probably actively taking your kids somewhere, right, to like some sort of sport, some sort of activity. So instead of like, well, you're not going to solve the whole dilemma about whether or not I feel like I'm a good mom, but you can alleviate some of the tension of like, okay, I can at least take care of dinner and feel good about that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it takes a little bit of that mind space and a lot of bit, some of that angst off versus like, OK, I'm going to solve the world's problems with my product or with my um, my client service offering. Well, and that to me is another example of an insight. Right. So, again, I'm going to belabor this throughout the episode. And of I really- think you should, because I think th- if people can understand insight after all this, I think that's going to be a win for this episode. Yeah. Trying to get people to has been the bane of my existence. In any case, that's a different conversation for, for a, a different, different day. day. But I, I think that what DoorDash um, or any of the others that are in that space now did so beautifully is had they just listened to the surface of like mom doesn't know what to do with the kids for dinner, they probably never would have been born. Right? right. Because there are drive throughs or there are sandwich shops or deliveries or deliveries, pizza, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But what you got at is really the crux beyond that. Right. So if they dig, dug in a little bit, they might have gotten to. Well, I just feel bad because that's not healthy for them to eat that all the time, right? Mm -hmm. But that's also not really the answer of the insight, right? And so if you keep on digging, well, okay, so what does that mean to you? Well, what does that mean to you? You dig way down deep. And I think about it like digging into like the earth. I don't know why that that is like the analogy (laughs) in my head, but it's like, just keep digging, get your shovel, just keep going through the layers. The actual insight is... I don't feel like a good mom if I am not getting my kids to eat healthy meals. Right. And healthy is relative. So that's the other piece of this. You know, DoorDash and those other services, they offer the gamut. 
right? So if you as a mom, if healthy to you is literally salad and vegetables and whatever, you can get that. If healthy to you on the other side is just, oh my God, I don't want them to eat McDonald's for one more day. There are solutions for that. But what they're doing is allowing mom to have more mind space, like you mentioned before, Anne, but also make her feel good because in the midst of being crazy busy and doing all of these different things, she's not having to choose or sacrifice what she believes makes her a good mom. Yeah. And it's providing that access, right? That access that didn't exist before. Exactly. Because some of these like restaurants and stuff were dine in and pick up only yeah, and didn't necessarily have the delivery. So now you have access to a whole lot more choices. Or you had like pizza places offering healthier options, which I always thought was such a joke. I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell my six-year-old that we're ordering Papa John's, but he's going to eat a salad. Salad. That will go great. Right. Exactly. (laughs) All right. The third question that leads to insightful consumer research. What needs to be true about a brand service business in order for you to trust it is the right solution? Now, this is what informs your message and all your marketing materials, regardless if you're a product, service, or business. And this question isn't usually asked exactly like that. It's actually asked in multiple different ways, and we're going to get to that in a second. But through these questions, you can infer based on the behaviors, based on the actions, based on the way that they communicate and the stories that they tell. So the best way to really get to this insight of what needs to be true is to really lead with open-ended questions. And April preluded this um, a, a little bit ago with the questions that start with why, mm-hmm. questions that start with how, questions that start with what. These are open-ended questions that allow your consumer to actually let you know what's actually going on in their heads and helps them express like what is it about that tension, that angst that is making them feel so drugged down, and then how you're going to be able to alleviate it. So here's some of the questions that we've used in order to really get at this, what needs to be true, so that you can construct your marketing materials and your messaging. For example, why did you choose this product service business? Very easy one to start with, right? Why do you continue to use it? How can it be better improved to make you feel more whatever that feeling is when you're trying to transform that feeling? help you articulate and give you some words that you can leverage in your messaging and your marketing materials. How do people perceive the category or industry? This might be more of a a question you might ask your clients, or maybe you're asking some internal folks in order to understand how to do a rebound within your own organization. What do you want people to believe about your business? Again, this is one that you can use in order to really understand what your image is or what your reputation is or what you want it to be. What do your clients care about? This is a really, really fundamental question for really understanding what you're going to focus on. And it's been really important in this time of COVID with the lean workforces, right? So you can really understand where you're going to hone in and where you're going to focus in order to provide the best growth for your business amidst like really challenging times. Very simple ones. Why did you pick up that product? If you were in a shop along with with a consumer, just ask them, why did you pick that up? How did that get your attention? Or how would you prefer to engage with my business, especially if you're having some conflict or maybe things aren't going so well, like asking them, how do you want to engage with my business? Why do you prefer that color? So it's interesting that you brought up the conversation about blue. <laughs> that, that tends to be a big one, right? You know, it's like, why do you prefer that color? And this really helps you identify if it's an insight or if it's just some sort of like um, rash emotional response based on something that doesn't make sense or maybe a little bit irrational. Or why do you believe that what this service is selling versus what that service is selling is better? So pit it up against some other folks in your industry and your category and really see if they can differentiate why they would choose one over the other. So the art here is not to try to make it feel like an interrogation because it could definitely feel like that. So follow up questions like, hmm, that is interesting. Tell me more. Or, hmm, I never thought about it that way. These all encourage conversations And it allows them to feel like it's in a conversation versus being interrogated. And this is even true if you're doing one-on-one conversation. So everybody thinks consumer research needs to be a focus group where you're sitting behind the the two-way mirror and you're actually, you know, sitting there listening to somebody facilitate research. Your consumer research can be in a conversation that you have with your, your weekly with your client, just kind of you know, funneling in some of these questions in order to really elicit some responses. It could be after a presentation or after a, um, a another meeting where you're trying to decide strategies. Like, just put some of these questions in and, and really listen for the responses and the insights. 
So then what you do is you kind of consolidate and synthesize all of this information down. And this is what creates your messaging, your marketing elements. And this is key in selling your product service business to your consumer. Now, these things, as you're kind of listening for what must be true, that they might, your consumer um, might respond back to you. It could be things like, I really need somebody else to tell me that they like it too. So maybe you find out you need a testimonial. Or I just don't believe it works. So maybe you feel like you need then a claim in order to be able to substantiate the performance. Or uh, I'm just not sure, like, you know, it, it would just help if, like, there was somebody that had a lot of clout that would actually, like, advocate for this. So maybe you need, like, a credential. Or I don't believe the person who's telling me this. So maybe that's a spokesperson that you, ne- you need to put in there. Or this color is not matching with the way that this package is formulated, so you need some different elements of design. Or case studies if you're a a business, like maybe they don't understand or believe that what you're selling is true and they need some some, uh, case studies to back it up. Or even performance results, like I want to see how you've done this for other clients or I want to see how this product performs in different contexts. It also helps you highlight what you may be lacking. And these are your blind spots. And so this is why it's really important to listen to some of the naysayers of the consumer researcher, right? Because it's going to give you a lens about whether or not you have a credibility issue, a reputation issue, a popularity issue. Maybe you're not connecting to trends like you need to. So sometimes we can get so narrowly focused and like our actual performance. And like April said, we're kind of searching for the answers that we want to hear that we forget about listening to the broader context of what must be true in order to be successful. Yeah. And I will say that this is tough, right? Because for one thing, you get a whole lot of information. I mean, think about that list of questions that Anne just gave, right? And we're not suggesting necessarily that you use all of them, right? But I mean, typically speaking, if you're doing a focus group, it might be three hours with five people. Or if you're doing a one-on-one interview in home and shop along, that could be 90 minutes, right? So you're spending a ton of time with these people and you're getting lots of information, but not all the information is relevant to the challenge that you're trying to solve for. So I think a lot of the stuff that you just said is really important around thinking about like, okay, what do I actually need out of this conversation that's going to help me get there? It's not to say all that other stuff isn't helpful, but if it's really not going to help you solve the problem, the situation you're in, make a decision about whether this is the right solution, et cetera, et cetera, then you need to be able to kind of disregard or take that information out of your brain. On the other side of that, I think that you really do have to pay attention. And I always think about consumer research as a puzzle, right? Like yeah. there was a very specific reason that when I was in the back room of a focus group, I was typing almost verbatim what people were saying because it allowed my brain to start to filter through what was actually sparking with me and what came up again and again and those types of things, both in the room, but then also when I would go back over and read those virtual transcripts. And so I think that one, and I've said insights are insights, right? You have to dig for them. You have to mine for them. They don't just come out of a consumer's mouth. That's not the way that these things work. But if you're not really hearing what the consumer is saying, you're not going to get to those deeper insights. And so like even, Anne, when you said, I need to hear it from someone else, that is one example of how you could prompt the need for a testimonial. But people could also say something like, you know, I really always go to my friends for whether or not to do this, mm-hmm. right? And so then when you're getting to, if, if vehicle is the question, then you as the client need to translate that into, oh, a testimonial would be good here because they're saying that they go and they ask for advice from other people, right? And so I, I said I was going to kind of beat the dead horse on this one, but I think on the insight side or even on the just like hearing and piecing together side, you're never going to get to the answer if you're just pulling things out of the conversation that happened. One, because it's really hard to do that and stay aligned to whatever you're trying to solve. But two, the answers generally are not going to come from there. Yeah. So it is about synthesizing. It's about going back to your business and and seeing what has been successful in the yeah. way that you've communicated your business in the past. It's about maybe testing and learning new things and yep. new ways of being able to drive that engagement and, and drive those relationships. 
And it's about really just like comprehensively putting together a strategy yes. for how you're going to get to point A to point B. Like we said in the in the intro, this is an art. It's not a science. Yes. And this may seem very overwhelming. But if you can actually start with those questions and start drilling it down and taking it piece by piece and just really listening and hearing what the consumers are telling you, you'll find that it's going to piece together a lot more easily than mm-hmm. you initially considered. It only becomes really cumbersome and overwhelming when you are trying to make things fit <laughs> that um, based on the way that you want it to turn out. So if you just listen and you're a good listener, these things will start to emerge and you'll start seeing those themes that April's talking about that lead to the insights, that lead to, okay, then how does this need to show up in a message or in a marketing um, element that's going to allow me to convey the reputation, the credibility, the performance of my my uh, product, service, or my business. Exactly. Yeah. All right. The fourth question, at least insightful consumer research, where would you expect to hear from this brand service business in order to believe and trust them? April. All right. We talk about consumerism a lot and the messages that people get on any given day. So the important thing Well, not the only important thing here. There are many important things we've mentioned today. But really, you have to be willing to, again, do the hard work to meet your consumer where they actually are and where they'll be most receptive to your message. There are too many instances of Me Too strategies where people are like, well, they're on this channel. I need to be on this channel. Or maybe I need to be on all the channels just so I can make sure I boil the ocean and cover every possible aspect with the message. That is where I believe it gets overwhelming because you're just randomly putting stuff out there. You're spending money, you're t- spending time, you're spending energy. If instead you took the time on to understand the demographic and the psychographic behavior of the people you're trying to target and who that consumer really is and where they get their information, you'll be much more targeted in your approach and you'll also save yourself a whole lot of work with this smarter solution. So for example talked about working moms or moms on the go already. So let's continue that. So a mom who's on the go is probably not checking her Twitter feed regularly, if she even has one, first of all, (laughs) unless she is a hardcore sports fan. That might make sense. Instead, she's probably, you know, having a little downtime, leisurely scrolling through Facebook or Instagram when she gets a second to just take a breath sit down, enjoy a glass of wine, whatever that might look like. So when you think about her, you have to think about, again, where where and when you're actually going to catch her with a message and a time that she's going to be receptive to it. If we think about B2B communications, those are generally better received on LinkedIn since LinkedIn is a business-based platform as opposed to Facebook or Instagram, which, like we just said, is generally more for leisure or when you're having some downtime. So those are a couple of examples just to give context to what I was saying before. And ultimately, it's really important that your message, your storyteller, and your channel all drive in order to have the biggest impact possible. We call these brand love vehicles. It's a coin term by Anne, and it's the most efficient and effective way to reach your consumer. So this means you have to change your message to make it appropriate for the channel you're going to be on. This is so you can deliver the right message to the right consumer at the right time in the right place. Some more examples, because like we said, we are jam-packed with examples on this episode. A story you tell in long-form content on somewhere like YouTube or through a podcast like we do needs to be simplified to put things out into the social world. So you might take a key quote or a key visual or a key clip to put on social because that is the attention span and the type of communication people are expecting. If you have a 10-minute product demo, but you know potential clients may only stay engaged for 60 seconds, you have to find a way to shorten that while still delivering the impact that the 10-minute long-form video delivers. But the key here is to recognize that you have to tailor the information and where the consumer receives it for the recipient. They are not going to change their behavior to find you and your information. They'll just find somebody else that's in the space where they want to receive the message at that time and go with them. Yeah. And I think that's a really hard lesson to learn because everybody tries to buck the system (laughs) with that, right? So my favorite is like, oh, but 
my video is super engaging. Everybody's going to watch <laughs> 10 minutes of it. I'm like, no, 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 no. How many not. times have we heard that? We'd be millionaires. Exactly, right. And but the but one of the smartest thing I saw somebody do when we were all still um, in my PNG life when we were all still really doing pre roll videos was somebody made a five second pre roll ad, which is how many seconds you get before you can skip ads. Mm-hmm. Right, brilliant. Right, yep. the whole thing gets shown in the five seconds. People have to watch that whole five seconds. I'm probably like, I can't get my whole message across in five seconds. Well, that Apparently is the opportunity. <laughs> yes, that is the creative part, and you have to remember, remember too. That you don't have to tell the whole story through one channel. The opportunity is to create the ecosystem around your consumer. So it's using all your channels in in harmony with each other in order to be able to do the hard work that your brand message needs to do in order to get to the consumer in a way that they can receive it, right? So don't overload each one of the channels. Do what each channel needs to do. And that you do that by starting with your overall message and then breaking it down for each one of those channels and making sure you're strategically being able to leverage the channel, but also communicate what's important for your brand appropriately in each channel. Yep. Yep. All right. So just to summarize, four key questions that lead to insightful consumer research. First, what is causing a lot of tension, anxiety, angst right now? Also know what really sucks. Remember, this is in the context of the consumer. So ask this in two contexts, life in general, but then also specifically within the category industry you're in. Second, what feelings does this tension, anxiety, angst create? And what feelings would it create if it was alleviated? Honing in on this feeling should be the focus of your communication, whether it's directly or through a marketing vehicle. What needs to be true about a brand service business in order for you to trust it is the right solution? This is what informs your message in all your marketing materials, whether you're a product, service, or business. And finally, where would you expect to hear from this brand service business in order to believe and trust them? In this fast world of consumerism, it is so important to know where your consumer is and where they'll be the most receptive to your message. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. All right, our next section is in the trenches. This is where we're going to give real-world examples, and we use industry or category context, but this should be applicable to all of you guys, no matter what your business is, so you can put this into practice right away. So the first in the trenches question, how come one of the key questions isn't how much would they pay? (laughs) This is a really fun question. Great commodity question. Yeah, and and the answer is really simple because you won't get a good answer, Mm -hmm. all right? So when you're asking it in the context of consumer research, they're always going to inflate or deflate because the context you're asking them in is artificial. So they will either want to inflate it because they don't want to hurt your feelings. Or they want to impress you. Or they want to impress you. Or they'll deflate it because they're going to be like, eh, you know, this is just like, you know, the a product and I don't know, I'm not going to spend that much on a product. You know, so you're There's not always gonna, a naysayer in every group. Yeah. So you're not going to get a really true answer. The best way to test price sensitivity is in a, a real point of sale context where they actually need to make a decision to purchase. And this is true whether you're a B2C or a B2B, right? In a B2C, this is generally within your marketing materials, like or your ads or on shelf, whether you have a live or virtual shelf, either one. But you can play with the price elasticity by maybe introducing promos or coupons or special deals, as long as you don't go overboard here so that it becomes an expectation of sale and people are not going to buy it without a promo or a deal. So that's like Yankee Candles and Bath and Body Works. We've talked about that before. That's their business model. Doesn't work for most people, all right? In a B2B context, you do this by suggesting or offering multiple tiers. You can do this through a proposal or a pitch, but this allows you to get feedback on how your consumer, or in this case, your client, feels about price versus value. This is how we do all of our proposals, all of our pitches. And it really helps a client kind of customize a pricing that works for their budget 
without you feeling like you're negotiating your value. How many times we've been in that position? It's like, oh, we're going to do that for $100. What can you do for 50? But we want you to do the same thing that you're going to do for 100. It's like, no, (laughs) we we can't do that, right? But if you offer offer multiple tiers, it allows them to be in more control without you having to feel like you're sacrificing your soul. And it also builds in flexibility because a lot of times we want to just go for the hard yes, right? But in sometimes in doing that, we get the hard no, when they reject the proposal in totality because it's too expensive or it takes too long. So offering flexibility helps to get to the yes. But no matter what the context, the market will set your price, right? It's the old adage, how much is something worth? Whatever someone is willing to pay for it. So build that in and think about that as you are assessing your price sensitivity. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about the right way to do, obviously, consumer research throughout this. But I actually would make the strong statement that in most cases, how much you would pay should not even be part of the research. And like Ann said, if you get to the point where you can have an actual shelf set or be in an actual store or in a context where it's much more realistic and relatable to the way that they would actually shop, okay, maybe. I still don't yeah, think I that still you can- think it's hard. Yeah, I still think it's really Somebody's hard. Somebody's watching them make a decision. But we've talked so much today about the the fact that the consumer will not solve your issues for you. And to me, this is a prime example of trying to get them to do so because they really can't tell you how much they would pay unless they're faced with the decision of buying that thing at a real point in time. And so I think you might be able to get some general parameters, right? If you put them like to Ann's point, if you put them in a point of sale context or you go to the store with them, you might be able to see, okay, they compare prices and they definitely won't pay this much and they definitely, you know, this much feels too low and the and the product doesn't seem like it's going to do what it does, you know, whatever. But to ask them how much they would pay and then think like you could put your hand on the Bible and swear that that's what they're going to pay. Yeah. And I'm oversimplifying. But I just don't think that that works. I think this is something where you have to do other research as the owner of the business or the product or whatever to say, okay, this this is, you know, where things were five years ago and where they seem to be trending. And if we're going to be the premium product, maybe we can charge this. And then maybe you put stuff out in different markets, quite honestly, and see what's purchased and not based on the income level in that place. I mean, I just think that there are better ways to solve this issue versus asking it of the consumer because I just think it's either one, used the wrong way or doesn't give you enough insight to actually be usable. Yeah, you really have to gauge this one by their behavior. Yeah. I mean, that's really what's going to speak to you and give you a better understanding of what they're going to pay for your product, service, or business. I mean, I, I just, I mean, the one that I always come back to is, you know, we were doing research for laundry detergent at one point. I'm going to play you. And, you know, people were like, I, I buy Tide. I only buy Tide or whatever. And we would be in their home. And we're like, but they have Pyrex and Arm and & Hammer and like whatever on their shelf. In addition, they had Tide. But then you go to the store and, you know, they're shopping, their usual shopping list. We'd be like, just do your shopping list, right? And on the end cap, Pyrex would be on sale and they would grab it and put it in their cart. Like it just, it's like... <laughs> You can't, unless you're actually in the actual situation, you don't know because there's other factors that come to what they're actually going to pay and buy. And just to clear this, Purex. Pyrex is the the container. Oh, the Tupperware. Oh, well, you know. There you go. Apart from my course these days. <laughs> well, I mean, just to that point, too, it's like if, if somebody were to put water in front of you and say, how much you'd pay for water? i like, it's free. Yeah. Water's free. You know, and then, you know, now you, you got conditioned to buy water and bottles from Kroger, which is like, you know, a dollar a bottle. But now you could buy smart water for like $7. Who would have thought if you were to do consumer research and say, um, how much are you going to willing to pay for this smart water? Yeah. Like, yeah. Whatever. It's water. Yeah. It's water, right? Well, in the situation so, you're in, right? If you're leaving a Reds game and it's 110 degrees outside, you know, you might pay the $4 outside because inside it's eight. Like I, there's just so yeah. many different situations that like that question is just irrelevant. Yeah. Agreed. Second question. I'm struggling to define a consumer retention. Does that mean there's no way to reach this consumer? April. I would say not necessarily. You can always flip the coin around to what's the opportunity or if this were true, my life would be so much better from the point of view of the consumer or customer or client. Generally, a consumer can't articulate what this opportunity is or how to define it. But 
you know, we've used this example on the show before of if, if Ford had asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Like they just, mm-hmm. they can't create a space that doesn't exist. Nobody really can, right? Like unless you're the inventor or the one focused on this project or whatever. I This is just one that I also think is tough because to the point of not having the consumer solve it for you, that's exactly what we're talking about here. So you have to be able to give them some context to answer the question in order to get meaningful information, but then you have to be able to identify the tension point, the true tension point. Mm -hmm. So if it was up to you to formulate a vision based on the questions you're asking, knowing that the consumer, customer, client may not even know they wanted it until they actually see it. And I would caveat that that saying innovation is so hard, for, yeah, like true is. to the word, especially anymore with the proliferation of all the products and solutions and digital solutions and things that the world has created. But if you're going this route, you have to ask informed questions that get at that vision. This can be hard. It can take longer. They can also be more breakthrough. So for example, many movie theaters now have seats that recline in heat. No one said, I'm not going to go to the movie theater because there's not a heater in my chair. Right. <laughs> like <they're> just, <laughs> so when you well, hear it that recline. way. We've been going to movies forever and when our seats never had to recline yeah, before, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so what they did there is look into adjacent behaviors that they could learn from, which is people watching movies in their homes, right? And so when you do that, you probably are either reclined or your feet are up on the sofa or you have a blanket around you, right? It's just naturally a more comfortable space because it's your space. So taking that those adjacent learnings and thinking about, okay, how could I do it different, better, et cetera, to get more people in, charge a premium, you know, get them to come back more often, whatever those things look like. That's what that solution is. They saw an opportunity to make the theater feel more like you do at home And then they change the experience to mimic that more closely. We've also seen things like movie theaters serving alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. I have to believe the insight was people were sneaking it in and they figured that out when they cleaned up after the theater and thought we could make money on that. That's just my hypothesis. Not that I know from experience. Um, Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. But I mean, I, I think there are things like that too, right? So if you think about that, right? Okay, so they've always offered food and beverage. Now they have a bar too, which makes parents a lot more likely to go see that kid movie that they're kind of dreading, but you know, their six-year-old wants to see, so they get a drink. Well, now you have theaters that you can order from your chair if you want a refill of your drink, right? And so you can see the journey continuing on. Okay, so we offer alcohol. I'm, you know, with or without the kids, I guess, quite frankly, I order the drink. Okay, that's going well. But if I want another one, I have to exit the movie and not see what's going on or have my kids with me or whatever those different things are. Okay, well, now how can we address that need and have people come to me and deliver it to my seat? Okay, well, they can order it from the app or from their chair or whatever that might be. So I think, again, no one would have ever said, I'm not going to the movie theater because I can't have a drink. Yeah. (laughs) And But if you think about, all right, how can we make the experience better or more like home or things that people are doing outside of going to the movies, what else do they do for pleasure in that same psychographic demographic? That's an example. I think that's a really good one because it got me. I mean, now that's the only place where you go to see movies is the place that we can actually recline, heat our seats, and I can push a button and they come and serve me whatever I want to serve. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing. It makes the experience so much better. I'm totally willing to pay for it. Now, if they could only figure out a way that you could go to the bathroom without having to oh, leave the theater. I know, but right? I mean... You need I, to make the bathrooms closer. Yeah, or something. But I, <laughs> I, I don't want to perceive to kind of understand how you would do that. But I think that's a great example. All right. Our third in the trenches question, what are the biggest mistakes you see people make when doing consumer research? And April and I are going to tag team this one a little bit. And we've hit some of these, but let's just kind of put a fine point on this one because I think it's really important. So the first is leading the consumer. And I think April hit it on this one. It's like, do you like this pretty blue one or this neutral white one? (laughs) And you guys, I mean, I'm sure you guys are laughing. You're like, dub. I'm like, this happens all the time. I can tell you this happens all the time. I mean, sometimes without even intending, 
But you got to watch, and this is another one, not to bring your biases in, all right? So, of course, you're going to be championing one, especially if you're the designer, you know, you're like, I like this one and not that one, or I like this idea, not that idea. Of course, that's the case. But if you want really true consumer research that can get you those right insights, you got to leave your bias on the door and you got to like avoid leading the consumer. Another one is try to convince them of an ultimate problem that doesn't exist, but is better for your product, service, or business. And if you have any question what this is, um, just watch some episodes of Shark Tank. It happens all the time, <laughs> especially on app-based services. Like a lot of people bring this and they're like, you know, I, it's solving this problem. And then you have a fundamental like misunderstanding or can't conceive of what that actual problem really is or that the problem actually exists. But you try to convince people that they have the problem in order to have a solution for your product. Um, or you categorize insights to try and simplify the summary. And this happened all the time at P&G, frankly, where we go and we have this very meaty consumer research. Like, as April said, she was, like, documenting everything that people were saying. I can tell her that most of the people at P&G then would take everything she said and distill it down to three buckets. Yep. Right? And then you lose the nuances. You lose the insights because you're trying to simplify it for the context of a manager or somebody outside the category or your client. And then it just feels very watered down. And remember, the whole opportunity here is to find connection points that you can authentically connect your brand, especially in an emotional way that's going to drive value. Another one is you seek out too much input and generally from the wrong people. And this is where you have to really decide about qualitative versus quantitative research. Of course, there's places for quantitative research, especially if you're a big brand and you may have to validate the changes that you're going to make are going to indeed reap the benefits that you are hoping for. But you got to be careful about who you're asking and how many people you're asking because it can get unwieldy and very overwhelming very quickly. And then I mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again, is don't disregard the naysayers for the majority. This happens a lot too. It's like, oh, well, like 10 people liked it and two people didn't. So we're just going to throw the two people out. Now, you may still go forward with what the majority said. That is totally legit. Except for you better listen to what those two people had to say because they are the ones that are telling you what your challenges are going to be. They're the ones that's telling you what your naysayers are going to be. And now because of social, those naysayers can get really, really loud. They sure can. Very loud. And they could totally drown out the 10 people that liked it very, very quickly. All right. And I'll go on to mine. So hear what you want to hear. This is what we all call bias. You know, you're listening, 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 and you're like, oh, I knew that was going to be the answer. And then suddenly that becomes the solution. And it's because you had it already in your head, which goes to the next one, preset agendas, wanting a certain outcome. So only looking for that. I think people that have been in their business for a long time, sometimes this can be something that's an innocent fault, quite frankly, where They know so well the business that they're in and the experiences they've had before, and they usually have a lot of the legacy information that they feel like they already have the answer and they're just trying to prove it instead of really looking for, like Anne said before, those insights, that sort of thing. Anxiety-based changes. This was always the favorite on the agency side. This isn't going well, so we're going to change everything for the next group, for the next day, et cetera. And everyone is scrambling. And then at the end, it looks nothing like it did in the beginning because you've changed four times for four groups and you've basically wasted your money on the research. Recency effect. Taking what the last group said and using it as the conclusion. I already always love this one. I'm like, we paid for three days worth of research. But, you know, this last group, for some reason, held all the power, even though in some cases they said the opposite of every other group. And finally, distracted back rooms, people coming in and out and not hearing all of it. This is why I personally, I'll get on my soapbox a little bit, have a hard time being in a back room for three focus groups in a row for six or eight or nine hours because I don't think we have the attention span for that. But I think the problem can become where people pop out to take a call or they're only sort of paying attention or they're answering other emails or whatever and they miss a lot of what's going on. And so what they hear becomes the answer. Yeah. And I, and I really, I'm just a true believer that focus groups are not the most effective way to, in no. order to mine for insights. Agree. A lot of people like to do them because it feels legit, mm-hmm. but it's not really the place that you're going to be like, oh, that is exactly an insight that we needed in order to move this business. You're going to have way too many cooks in the kitchen there that's going to have their opinion and it's just going to be a big mess. We believe in one-on-ones, yep. small group, really small group, um, as well as putting your research in the context of whatever you are actually trying to sell. So if it's a product or service, putting that in the context of 
how that person's going to hear it, receive it, and then where they're eventually going to buy it. And then, like we said, from a B2B standpoint, these are things that you can be doing in the normal realm of your just interaction with your clients. Uh, So that is an opportunity that you have in order to continue to get this information that then threads together across clients to create your themes, your insights that you can then leverage for your business. So you don't feel like you have to be like, oh, I'm just going to send, you know, all my clients a like survey. Like <laughs> surveys have been like they're overdone now. I, I don't think people are legitimately taking the time in order to actually fill out surveys. If you're relying on surveys, take it as a point of data, but it's, you're not going to get true insights from there either. So really think about what's the best way in order to like really get this information that you need and make sure it's in as much natural or authentic of a context as possible. All right, our fourth in the trenches question, how do I know of my insight? April, I'll let you finish this one out so you can hammer this one way home. (laughs) All right, so validation's always a big question because so many of us are wired to minimize risk. So we're looking for a right answer. But this can keep you in an ongoing loop for a very long time, especially because humans do have that, you know, really nasty habit of being different. And inconsistent. And inconsistent. So the best way to validate an insight is to put something out there and see how the market responds, which leads to testing and learning, which I'm not going to belabor that point because we talk about it all the time. But really just, you know, continuing to put things out there and continuing to try and really paying attention to what is happening and whether you're getting closer or farther away to what's actually working. But also, this is where you need to sharpen your pencil and think about risk versus reward because most people are afraid of failing. They don't want to lose money for the company. They don't want to look bad in the company. And so they have a hard time really pulling the trigger. And so this is where an upside versus downside conversation to really think about, okay, what can we gain at the risk of what are we losing so that you can manage both accordingly to help overcome this And allowing for that testing and learning and spend of money ultimately to have a path forward that's actually meaningful. A watch out here is the other side of the coin of chasing revenue. This comes from, for example, and I always love examples like this, one consumer saying, you know, I really love your cookies. You should make cakes too. This is exactly what I'm talking about with asking the (laughs) consumer to solve your problem for you. No, you should not go and make cakes. I mean, when that is the answer, I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Why do we even have this discussion? If you make cookies in your bakery, you can make cakes too. Duh. But even if you go on and you make cakes without verifying the rest of your consumer target or the market in general to see if you have the right playing cakes before you go and do something like that, do not take one statement and say that that's what you're going to go and do. Again, one more time here. You have to do the hard work to get there. This sounds really flippant. It sounds really nebulous. It sounds very gray. But again, that big pet peeve of taking something and saying that it's an insight is really out of, in my mind, sometimes laziness, but also all the things we've said already. You get so much information. It's hard to focus when you do days and days worth of research. It's hard to know what you're listening for. It's hard to know if what you're hearing is going to ladder up to a bigger insight, right? I feel the pain of all of those types of things. But if you do truly capture the research in the most objective way that you possibly can, and then you sit down and you say, okay, this is the objective of what we're trying to solve, it becomes systematic in the way you sift through that research to, one, identify either things that are coming up time and time again, but may not be said the exact same way, or things that come up and you're like, that is interesting. We have not heard that before. That could be something because it, you know, fulfills X, Y, and Z of this exercise that we're doing. Those are the types of things that you're looking for. And for me, I will get really explicit and state that consumer research for me, because there were so many problems with it in my mind, the objectivity was so important that, like I said before, I would type out everything that was said. You know, I would go with the team into a room. If there was stimulus, we'd bucket stuff that was picked or not picked and put it on the wall and say, what does this mean? Highlight through that research and say, ah, you know, this keeps coming up. It's said in different ways, but it feels like it's the same sort of thing. We might have something here. That is really what you have to do with the research. And then in addition to that, 
In addition to knowing what you're solving for, you have to look for those other complementary things because, again, that single consumer insight is not the solution to everything that is going on. So they might, you might get to something like not feeling like a great mom because I'm not feeding my kids good food for them, but then how you go and solve that is a different issue, problem, whatever, altogether. And then you get into the real business of it, like supply chain and when does it go on shelf or when does it have to be launched or what test mark, all that kind of stuff, right? So again, consumer research is not the be all end all. Take the time to really dig in and find the right insights. Otherwise, they're probably just RTBs at the very best or throwaways at the very worst if you're taking verbatims. And RTB is being reasons to believe. Yes, thank yeah. you. Reasons to believe. Which are your claims on pack, which let people say yes or no, this is for me, but it's beyond that much bigger idea, which is why you're there in the first place. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, I mean, you have to just put it out there and see how the market reacts. Yes. We talk, we said that several times throughout this episode is like, you really aren't going to know until you do that. So avoid the spiral of trying to validate it because as your consumers are going to give you different responses people around you are going to give different <laughs> responses to you and people who have not been part of the research are going to layer on their perspectives onto that. So the best way to execute after your consumer research and after you synthesize and you kind of distill it down to maybe a couple insights that you want to test out is to go put that back out into the market yep. and see how the market responds, either by developing your what must be true marketing materials and that sort of thing with the right channels, which was the fourth question, See it. Put it in that context. See how people react. Gauge it. That's the best way of doing it. So I thought that that was like really, really good insight. See? Insight. That was an insight, right? Unintended. Okay. Thank you. Or not so punny, but in any case, I'll give you credit. Here all day. (laughs) All right. Our third and final segment is Marketing Smarts Moment. And this is like a business or a person we've experienced recently either using or not using their marketing smarts. And it may or may not be related to this topic. And this one kind of is in an adjacent kind of way. So my marketing smarts moment is Key West, right? So I was a big old moment. I know it was a big old moment. I was here. I was I was in Key West a couple of weeks ago, and some of you were like, "What does this have to do with anything?" I'm going to get there. So hold on. But tourism in general is one of the biggest industries in the world, right? It's a lot of some of those life questions that we were getting towards at the beginning of what people are. Are caring about and and those positive feelings about what travel and vacations and experiences bring to them. So that connects to that in a little bit of a way, but I'm going to get to even a stronger connection in a second. So it's important that as a brand, because Key West as a brand, any location is actually a brand that they think about their brand and they think about how consumers or in this case, visitors or even residents are reacting to their brand. So even for us in Cincinnati, you have the city that's doing a bunch of work in order to develop the brand around the city. Um, you have counties that are working to develop the the, the um, popularity around the counties. They, they're looking at bringing in events. They look at bringing in sports teams and bringing in new restaurants and businesses, all in a desire to be more popular and to bring in revenue. So all of this attracts tourism, as well as people who are ultimately going to live here. So if I was going to think about Key West as a brand in in my Marketing Smarts moment, which was a couple of weeks ago, I would summarize Key West as very eclectic. I thought it was very, very cute. It feels like the Garden District in New Orleans. I kept saying that. I was walking by the little houses. They look very much in that vein. It, It was very nicely manicured. It just had that feel. There was fantastic food and good bars. So you had to like a nice nightlife. I really appreciated that. Uber was great. It was very easy to get around. They were very quick, but the place is very walkable in general. They had nice accommodations and they were pretty affordable. So it made the experience even that much more enjoyable. The people were nice. Even the excursions, we went on a cruise, a sunset cruise, and we went kayaking. Those were all fun. Now I say all that, but I thought like the music scene was lacking a little bit. All right. But so overall, like I really enjoyed the visit, but it was not high on my list to return to because I had trouble kind of finding my place, right? So now you guys are probably asking, okay, that's all great and all, and thanks for giving us the review of Key West. So what does this have to do with my business? Well, the obvious connection is, okay, your business is all about attracting consumers, customers, and clients, right? So creating a brand in order to do that is really important. But another non-obvious connection is in attracting talent. 
So we've talked a lot in this podcast about making your business one people want to come to and stay at. This is super crucial right now, especially as we're competing for talent. We talked about the lean workforces, right? So as you're thinking about how you're going to overcome some of this tension that you might be facing as a result of lean workforces and things like that, you can reconsider and maybe use this as a way to do some consumer research. See what I'm doing here? (laughs) with your employees or with maybe even former people that have been uh, employed at your business to find out what would you be if you were like a tourist destination, right? What would you look like? What would you offer? What kind of amenities would you have? Why would people want to come and be at your business and stay at your business? So I just offer that as like a different way, as a different creative exercise in order to get at an answer that might be hard to ask directly. And this is another, without going down a whole rabbit hole, another way that you do consumer research is by having them do creative exercises that are a little ancillary to the actual direct question that allows them to think a little bit differently. So I offer that as a way for you to think about how to make your business more of a tourist destination in order to kind of get out of some of the, uh, the the box of like, oh, no, no, business has like this, like certain principles that it has to maintain. Yeah. One more thing I would say is I haven't been to Key West, but I feel like the reason for potential non-return or disappointment is I think that there is a perception of Key West that's not actually the reality when you get there. And it's become to me a little bit of a sensationalized place with everything from like the southernmost point There was a line in order to take your picture out of that. (laughs) I believe it. But then also just about, like, to me, and we talked about this, Anne, it would be like a Caribbean Jimmy Buffett, like, kind of, like, vibe, right? Which you're like, It's not that. And so I think that they may be having a little bit of an identity crisis, too, which consumer research can also be used to help that. But I think we're in a time where... One, we were in COVID and a lot of places got hit really hard, especially ones that use tourism as such a huge part of their business. But two, and maybe as a result of that, I'm seeing a whole lot more like billboards on the highway and promotions for trips from cities that I've never really Mm -hmm. even thought of, right? We all know the Pure Michigan campaign, but the other day it was like, come to St. Pete. And then I saw one for Clearwater and I was like, interesting. So all of that to say, you know, another reason to better define your brand and another way to do it is say okay what is the perception and maybe that was right a while back but like now what is the reality and what's the experience and how do we curate and cultivate it more so that these things like nice accommodations great uber good cruise are elevated to say and overall i would describe key west as having this feeling right i think that's a really good point which is analogous right back to your business All right, so just to summarize four key questions that lead to insightful consumer research. One, what is causing you a lot of tension, anxiety, angst right now? Also knows what really sucks. Ask this in two contexts, life in general, but then also specifically within the category or industry you're in. Second, what feelings does this tension, anxiety, angst create and what feelings would it create if it was alleviated? Honing in on this feeling should be the focus of your communication, whether it's directly or through a marketing vehicle. What needs to be true about a brand service business in order for you to trust it is the right solution? This is what informs your message and all your marketing materials, whether you're a product, service, or a business. Where would you expect to hear from this brand service business in order to believe and trust them? In this fast world of consumerism, it is so important to know where your consumer is and where they will be the most receptive to your message and actually when as well. And with that, we'll say go and exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. We can help you become a savvier marketer through coaching or training you and your team or doing the work on your behalf. Please also help us grow the podcast by rating and reviewing on your player of choice and sharing with at least one person. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.